Jeremiah chapter one. Beginning in verse one, we read the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth for you shall go to all whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Most of you, and I say most of you because I know that there are a few youngsters here who will remember that there was a time when at railroad crossings they had mechanical arms that would come down. And even though it's hard for you to believe that there was a time in the early days of the automobile that a man would stand at a railway station and he would hold a lamp and wave the lamp to warn the oncoming traffic that the train was coming and a tragedy occurred in a rural town. Some young people were driving their car and they crossed a railway intersection at exactly the same time that the train came and they were killed. There was an investigation and a trial. And they called the man whose job it was to bring the lamp and wave the lamp to warn that the train was coming. And so he sat, sat on the witness stand and he said, please state your name. And he stated his name and tell me where you were on the night of such and such. And he said, I was at the train station. And what were you doing? He said, I held the lamp and I was waving the lamp. And he goes, thank you. No further questions. And as he left the witness stand, he was heard under his breath to mutter. I'm so glad they didn't ask me if the lamp was lit. Jeremiah needs to provide a warning and he's going to be a light and he's going to be a lit light as he warns about the upcoming judgment. Now, the book of Jeremiah relates the prophecies that were given by God to Jeremiah, who was a priest who would become a prophet that is going to be important as we continue our study in the book of Jeremiah. The prophecies were dictated by Jeremiah to his secretary, a man named Baruch. From the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and later sections were composed, and then chapter 52 is added as a supplement. So the book itself is broadly broken down into three categories. From chapter 1 to chapter 45, there are prophecies concerning the judgment of Judah. From chapter 46 to chapter 51, there are prophecies concerning the foreign nations that surrounded Judah. And then there's a historical supplement in chapter 52 and chapter 52 is almost identical 
to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 18, all the way through chapter 25, verse 30. And apparently wasn't written, that particular portion wasn't written by Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. He's been called the prophet with the broken heart. And the reason why he's called the weeping prophet is because the prophecies are bathed in tears and compassion. It is a book by a broken hearted man. And it's part of a broken message. Jeremiah will labor in the ministry for some 40 years and he is going to be proclaiming a message of judgment, a message of imminent attack and captivity on a nation that had turned its back on the Lord. And so Jeremiah, as you can imagine, has an unwelcome message and he will be despised and he will be rejected and his message will provoke anger and persecution and threat. And from the wells of a broken heart, the, the, the prophet will weep. And the book is difficult to arrange chronologically or topically. But there's a central theme in the sermons and the signs. The central theme of the sermons and the signs is this almost desperate, desperate cry to abandon sin and to surrender to the lordship of the living God. And that there's only one way, one way, one way to avoid catastrophe. That judgment was coming to Judah and that that judgment was rooted and grounded in the nation's rebellion and their disobedience to God. A German writer, Friedrich von Lagau, wrote, quote, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Through with patience he stands waiting. Exactness, he, in exactness he grinds it all. The wheels are turning. You've all heard that God is not mocked, that what a person sows, that also they will reap. Judgment is a difficult subject. And the reason why it's such a difficult subject is because people aren't always open or welcome of a God who cares about what we as a nation do or what we as a people do or what we as a church do or what we as a family do. And the fact that God judges a nation or a people or a church or an individual and God pays wages. It might seem an outdated notion. But there's a reoccurring theme. Can a nation forsake God? And despise God. Can a nation forsake God, despise God's law, defy God's rule, and avoid all consequences? And the book of Jeremiah provides some important reminders that God is ruler and creator over nature and nations, and that God is personally, intimately involved with our world. And because he's personally and intimately involved with our world, he actually cares about our heart and about our lives, particularly for those who love him and trust him. And there may have been moments in the not too distant past where you spoke into the darkness and you whispered the words. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Is there anyone listening to me? Is there anyone aware of what's going on in my heart and in my life? Is there anyone aware of the circumstances of my marriage? Is there anyone aware who I'm that I'm unemployed? Is there anyone aware of the of the of the tears that you cry in the night or the struggles that you experience? And God is in control. 
and that God is loving and merciful and that he calls us into a covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ into an unbreakable and permanent bond based on Christ's sacrifice. And that becomes part of the point of this particular passage in this particular book, because the children of Israel were part of the covenant community. And because God is a God of justice and a God of righteousness, and he promises this is his promise. That he will judge sin. Now, I want you to think about that carefully. If I said to you, did you do you know that God makes promises? I think most of you would go, yes, God makes promises. And the fact that God makes promises, is it safe to say that God keeps his promises? By the way, under normal circumstances, if I said to you, God makes promises, God keeps promises, would you go, thank God? And then I go, let's be clear here, because God makes promises and God keeps promises. One of the promises that he makes is that he will, that sin won't go unjudged. That sin won't go unpunished. Now that should cause you great fear or great joy. Fear when you consider that the judgment comes for those who reject the provision of grace and mercy that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. The justice and righteousness of a holy God demands that he makes every wrong right. God created a universe that required atonement for sin in the sense that he created human beings and he gave them the ability to choose or choose otherwise. That lawbreakers have to be held accountable and that a price has to be paid and, and that justice has to be served. But we live in a world, we live in a world where most people believe that corrupt, immoral, criminal behavior cannot go unpunished. One of the most terrible things that happened when we were overseas, when we were in Israel, we happened to be on a tour and our bus driver, uh, Eliezer, uh, was speaking to our tour guide, Romano. And one of the news came through that a militant group of Muslim terrorists had went into an Israeli settlement and massacred a family. And they massacred them in the most brutal way. And they had two small children. And when I say small children, I mean children under the age of two years. And they went in and they slit their throats of these children and they cut out their internal organs and mutilated them. And these Israeli guides were veterans. These were people who had seen war and brutality. And you could see the emotion welling up inside of them. Because if, 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 if we live in a world where brutality goes unnoticed. If we live in a world and we believe that corrupt, immoral, criminal behavior cannot go unpunished, if we live in a world where every corner of the globe men have established courts and tribunals to protect citizens, to exonerate the innocent, to punish the guilty, why do we find it strange that a righteous and a holy God would hold nations and people accountable for their actions. The American poet James Russell Lowell may have given a summation of Jeremiah's life and ministry when he wrote, Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Jeremiah was going to have to make a choice on which side he was going to stand. Was he going to stand with a righteous and a holy God or was he going to join an apostate nation in its rebellion? And so you can imagine that Jeremiah didn't always welcome his call. Because of the harsh message and the unwelcome response, there are going to be many times as we study in the book of Jeremiah that he's going to go, could you find another prophet? Could you get another spokesperson? Is there anyone else who would be willing to take this job? 
And I'm going to suggest to you that there may come times in your life where when you relate the message, hey, guess what? Sin is awful. And grace is wonderful. There's a wonderful God who's willing to forgive your sin. If you'll turn from your sin and unbelief and and turn to the Lord. Jeremiah was required by God to remind the people of the terms of the covenant and then that God mandated punishment for disobedience. So one of the things that I'm hoping as we read that you're going to ask this question and you're going to ask it over and over again. What does this book mean to me? What does this message mean for me? What value do its lessons provide for the New Testament believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you'll remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And we can learn from Jeremiah's example and we can pay attention to the warnings. But we can also remember that these instructions have been given through time and space to provide for us a mechanism where we can learn lessons and live godly lives in the Lord Jesus. In Romans 15, 4, it says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The historical purpose of Jeremiah's writing was to motivate the people of Judah to repent of their sin and warn them of a coming judgment. Now, by the way, for those of you who are studying with us on Sunday, that seems to be the opening verses of Mark's gospel as well. Remember, John the Baptist shows up and says, repent. Because the king is coming. And the king was coming In grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. But the king will come again. In judgment. For the children of Judah. Jeremiah's job was to turn the hearts of God's children away from lifeless idols, empty idols, worthless idols. And to return. To the living and loving Lord and creator. You can probably imagine why this message becomes a timeless message in every generation. Because every generation is tempted to trust something, anything other than the Lord. And so we're going to look at the historical context rather quickly in Jeremiah chapter one, verse one. Look what it says. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Jeremiah was the son of a priest. Now, even with that little bit of information, I want you to start thinking about things. If you're the son of a priest, guess what you were expected to do? To be a priest. That's a, that's a good answer. If you were the son of a priest, you were expected to follow in your father's footsteps and perform the function of a priest in the temple of God. Now, the priest's duties were outlined and they were described in the book of the law. The priest had instructions. They were to follow those instructions. Most priests life consisted of one on one kinds of relationships. The priest Um, would basically follow the instructions that were given to the law. In the law, Warren Wiersbe writes, day after day, there were sacrifices to offer. There were lepers to examine. There were unclean people to exclude from the camp. There were cleansed people to reinstate. There were official ceremonies to observe. A sanctuary to care for. The law to teach. There was a lot to do. They were professional ministers. Earlier on when we were in worship, uh, Isaac talked about the fact that part of the Levites' inheritance clearly wasn't land and property. They didn't have land and property like Benjamin and like Judah, like Gad and like Ephraim. 
Their provision, their portion was the Lord. And so. It was a safe job. It was a predictable job. And this is going to be important when we look at Jeremiah's Jeremiah's calling next week. Because the moment that he's on the fast track of ministry as a priest and God is calling him as a prophet, as a priest, there was portions and sacrifices. There was a job to do and it was very predictable and relatively uneventful. But if you were a prophet, guess what? You didn't have income. In those days, you didn't go, hey, I'm going to be a prophet, so guess what? I'm going to have my own radio and television program, and you're going to send me money. No, the prophet had uncertainty. They didn't have a way of necessarily making a living. Being a prophet wasn't necessarily an an easy job. It was an unpredictable job with an unpopular message. And so in verse 2, it says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. I want you to draw attention to that expression, to whom the word of the Lord came. It doesn't say the words of the Lord, but the word of the Lord. What do you think the word of the Lord is? I'm going to suggest to you that it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in John 1, 1, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, when you're talking about the Old Testament and the word showing up, the word is the express communication of God. The fundamental meaning of the word word is the mechanism whereby communication takes place. This is going to be very, very important as we continue our study, because in an apostate, rebellious nation that has no interest in hearing from God or listening to God, in a nation that desires prosperity and security and safety, to have a message of judgment isn't popular. God calls Jeremiah by the word of the Lord. In the course of his ministry, Jeremiah is going to encounter false prophets. prophets, And it's going to be very, very important that Jeremiah have the assurance that his message and his call is truly and legitimately from God. The verse 2 Gives us the who, where, and when. Verses 1 and 2 gives us the who, where, and when of Jeremiah's call. Jeremiah is the son of Hilkiah in verse 1. The call takes place in Anathoth of Benjamin. The when is answered in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Later we're going to read about the why. He's ordained a prophet to the nations in verse 5. The origin decided before his birth in verse 5. Jeremiah's response is, I'm a youth in verse 6. God will correct him. I'm with you in verses 7 and 8. And God is going to be the empowering presence for Jeremiah in verses 9 and 10. So Bible scholars suggest that Jeremiah is probably somewhere around the age of 20 when God calls him to the office of a prophet. In the 13th year of Josiah's reign, would place this in about 626 B.C. Now, that's going to be important in just a few moments. In verse 3, it says, It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. In order for you to understand this prophecy and these words, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a historical background. The reigns of Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon, Josiah, Jehoiaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah are described in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1, 
uh, Second Chronicles chapter 30 all the way through chapter 36, verse 21. And so the whole ministry of Jeremiah is taking place over a 40-year period from 626 B.C. to 584 B.C. Now remember, before Christ, the way you reckon time is sort of backwards. Abraham is the father of the Jews in 2000 B.C. David is the king of Israel in about 1000 B.C. So from the time of Abraham to the time of David is about a thousand years. From the time of David to the time of this particular ministry of Jeremiah, another 400 years has gone by. And so, James, we're going to put up the kings. And I want you to note the kings of Judah. Okay. And as you go down the list, some are good kings, some are bad kings. But I think as you go down the list, we're going to have to go further down the list until we get to the reign of Hezekiah. Okay, you see Hezekiah there. He's a good king from 726 to 697. He rules for 29 years. Now, Jeremiah was born when Manasseh ruled in Judah. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Israeli history, David is the king. Solomon is the king. After Solomon's death, one of his sons assumes the role of king. There's a split in the kingdom. There's the northern kingdom of Israel. There's the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah, during the southern kingdom of Judah, Jeremiah is born when Manasseh rules. And arguably, he is the worst king in the history of Judah, at least up until that point. His story is found in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 18. Now, Manasseh's father was the good king, Hezekiah. Manasseh, after his father died, assumed the throne at the age of 12. And because he assumed the age at, at, at the age of 12, the court officials easily manipulated the boy king away from the Lord, away from the things of God and the word of God and the worship of God. And they began to suggest to him and then he began to embrace idolatry. As a matter of fact, it says Manasseh seduced them. In 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 9, it says Manasseh seduced them, the people of Judah, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Before the children of Israel occupied the land, there were, you remember, Canaanites. There were Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites. Pepsi-lights. There were all kinds of these people who were occupying the land. And these people did all kinds of horrible, terrible things. Not only did they engage in idolatry, but in the worst kind of idolatry. They would offer their children on the sacrifices of Molech. They would practice human sacrifice. Every kind of wicked abomination that you can imagine um, brutality, genocide, slavery, uh, burnings. When they would capture people, they would cut their head off and, and they would create piles of skulls. I mean, it was, it was horrible and terrible. And what the Lord basically is saying is, guess what? They began to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before they ever showed up. Now, Think about this for just a moment. Judah began to act worse than the inhabitants who had previously occupied the land. There is a, a kind of a principle for us right off the bat right there. And that is, does it bother you when people who name the name of Christ, who claim to know and love and pray and be motivated by the Lord Jesus. Does it bother you when Christians act like unbelievers? Do you remember when you were an unbeliever? Do you remember the things that you said and did and thought? 
Was there ever a time in your life like my life where it was marked by perversion and wickedness and that your life really consisted of doing stuff that if you thought you could get away with it, you would make every attempt to get away with it? Maybe you were way more moral than me. But there was nothing moral about my life. It was wicked. And, and I got to tell you something. When you come to a place in your life where you understand the emptiness and the darkness inside of you. And you come to a place where you realize that in order for the wickedness and the emptiness and the darkness to go away. You have to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. To return to a lifestyle that Jesus delivered you from is one of the worst things that could possibly happen. When Manasseh died, his evil son Ammon continued the wicked practices of his father. So why is this important? Because Jeremiah was born and he grew up in the land of Benjamin as a priest's son when the nation was at the height of wickedness and apostasy and rebellion and disobedience towards God. He isn't growing up in a golden age and he isn't growing up in a glorious age when everybody reads the Bible and loves God and the worship of God marks their life. He is growing up in a world where the most unpopular thing to be is a priest. That's the world he's living in. This is a hard time to be in the ministry. In Jerusalem, idolatry is Rampant, including the wicked practice of human sacrifice to the god Molech. In 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that it was okay for people to kill their unborn children. In 1962, three, they outlawed prayer in school. Trust me, so long as there are tests, there will continue to be prayer in school. People will do it secretly. They'll do it behind the teacher's back, but they will pray. My point, there's this downward spiral. God's law given by Moses was ignored, disobeyed. It was a world where it looked like there was no hope at all. God's law and godly priests were not appreciated. And the timeline is important in order for you to understand Jeremiah's narrative. In 639 B.C., a group of Ammon's servants conspired together to murder the king. Ammon's son Josiah became the king, and he reigned until his death in 609 B.C. Josiah was young when he began to reign, but unlike his father and grandfather, Josiah had an amazing experience. He was exposed to the godly counsel of Hilkiah. And guess what? He began to seek the Lord. And in the 12th year of Josiah's reign, Josiah began a campaign to return the people to the Lord, to purge the land of the wicked practices, to purge the land of idolatry. And six years later, he orders the priests and workers to clean and repair the temple. And it was during that time that Hilkiah of the priests, as they were cleaning out the temple, they stumbled upon, of all things, a copy of the Bible, the book of the law. Some scholars think it was all five books of Moses. Some believe that it may have only been the scroll of Deuteronomy. But whatever it was, if it was all five books or it was the book of Deuteronomy, something amazing happened according to 2 Kings chapter 22. Hilkiah the priest brought the book to the king and read it to him. Can you imagine if it was all five books? 
He, br- he brings open the books, the books that had not been opened for generations. He opens the book and he opens the book at Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And he goes through Genesis and he goes through Exodus and he goes through Leviticus and he goes through Numbers and he goes through Deuteronomy. And when he comes to the end of the book, the king is sobbing and he tears his clothes and he's overcome by emotion and he sends for hold of the prophetess for special instructions from the Lord. He hears about God's law and he hears about God's love and he hears about God's covenant and he sees how far that they've gone away from what God had always intended. And he said, there's something really wrong with us. We've abandoned the covenant that God Gave to us, we've abandoned his love and his promises, and he called the people to return to the Lord. And so he calls for the prophetess Ahulda, and he says, please tell us what God's message and instruction is for us. And Hulda said that God's people had forsaken the Lord, and that rebellion and disobedience were an open invitation for judgment. But because of Josiah's sincere repentance and a willingness to covenant with the Lord, that judgment wouldn't come in Josiah's reign. And Josiah didn't wait for the temple repair to call the nation to repentance. And once again, he renews the covenant. He leads the people and he encourages them and then requires them to renounce idolatry, to renounce the wicked practices. He calls for the nation to turn from their sin and to return to the Lord. And they do so superficially. You know what it would be like? It would be like you being a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother. And you say to your family, we're going to serve God. We're going to read our Bible and we're going to pray and we're going to go to church. And all of the wickedness and the stupidity and... The craziness and the perversion and the corruption. I don't want it to be a part of my family anymore. And I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore. I I want my life to be different. And I want my family to be different. And I want the world to be a different place. And so you drag the kids to church and they hate it. They hate it. They go because you make them go. They go, but it's all a sham and it's a scam. It's a masquerade. It's superficial. And Josiah is desperately trying to lead the nation, but the people's heart has not changed. Leaders lead. A pastor can lead a church. A father and a mother can lead a family. We may love the Lord and we may call on our children to love and obey the Lord. Some will, some won't. Josiah wholeheartedly leads a crusade for reform and revival. Some embrace reform. But most rejected repentance and revival. And unlike their king, their hearts remained hard and unmoved and unchanged. And if you're a mother praying for your son, if you are a father praying for your daughter, if you are a grandmother or a grandfather praying for your family, if you are a ministry leader praying for the people that God has entrusted to you, few things can be more frustrating when you see the pain and the horror that sin brings to a family. They displayed no fruit of repentance. Jeremiah's 
message included that in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10. Jeremiah's message said, Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. God knows the truth. God knows the truth, what's going on inside of your heart. God knows the truth about your willingness to hold on to your sin rather than embrace the grace that's available through Christ. Josiah's sincere repentance and concentrated effort to lead the people away from idolatry to the Lord pleased the Lord. But there was a passive resistance on the part of the people. Because reformation is not the same as revival. We can change the outside, but not necessarily the inside. And you might be thinking, well, that's bad, right? I mean, I shouldn't force my children to be here if they don't want to be here. I forced my children to be here even when they didn't want to be here. Not in the hopes that I could make them hypocrites. But in the hopes that even that exposure would provide boundaries, limitations. You know, I I thank God even for what limited exposure that my family gave me. Because, again, as I've already shared with you on a number of occasions, I lived in a world where there were no rules and there were no borders or boundaries. And remember, I've told you over and over again, if you live in a home where anything goes, guess what? There's no there's no limit to the wickedness that you might embrace. The idols were removed. The temple was repaired. The worship of Jehovah was restored. But the people's hearts were dark and empty and wicked and hard. They had a divided heart and a lingering loyalty to sin. King Josiah would die on the battlefield. Josiah's son, Jehoiaz, became king. And then the nation, as soon as he became king, it was almost a downhill slide into idolatry. And as they slid completely back into idolatry, the king to the south, Pharaoh Necho, removed Jehoiaz from the throne, exiled him to Egypt where he died. He placed his brother on the throne, Eliakim. He gave Eliakim a new name, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was an evil king and in 2nd Kings chapter 23 verse 37 it says he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done in other words godly leadership was a thing of the past wickedness was in the present Jehoiakim taxed the people placed them under the unbearable burden to to pay the tribute money to Pharaoh Necho the Babylonian empire expanded its reach into Judea King Nebuchadnezzar also demanded tribute. Jehoiakim agreed to pay the tribute, went back on his promise. Nebuchadnezzar would take him prisoner to Babylon, would take the holy temple vessels with him in 597 BC. Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin. That son reigned for only three months. And then his uncle, that is Josiah's brother, Mataniah, Josiah's third son, First Chronicles chapter 3, verse 15, was named king. And then he renamed him Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. He was weak and he was indecisive and he feared human beings way more than he feared God, according to Jeremiah 38, 19. And the Bible's record of this king is he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He humbled himself not before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 12. Basically, Zedekiah would go to Jeremiah and he would say, hey, you're a man of God and you're the prophet of God and you hear from God. What does God want me to do? 
And Jeremiah would tell them. And then the ambassadors would come from Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and from all of the nations surrounding Judah. And Zedekiah would ask the ambassadors from the neighboring nations what to do. Hey, what should I do? In other words, Zedekiah wanted to give the prophet of God his religious due because, you know, religion is important. You know what it would be like? It would be like the President of the United States inviting Billy Graham to come in and talk to him and pray with him. Hey, Billy, will you come in and talk with me? Sure, I'll come and talk with you. What what would you like to hear? Well, just tell me what's going on. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But your sin has antagonized God. You've got to repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Savior. Thanks, Bill. And then you call in the ambassador from Iraq and Iran, from Mexico and Canada, and say, what do you think I should do? Well, you need to form political alliances. See, a politician wants to do what's popular. The diplomat wants to do what's safe. The prophet wants to do what's right. This is what's right, Jeremiah would say to Zedekiah. Don't trust Egypt and don't trust Assyria. Don't trust the hand of of man. Don't trust stupid alliances. Some people trust in horses. Some people trust in chariots. But we're Jews. We're people who are part of a covenant community. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to rely on the Lord. And Zedekiah would basically not trust the Lord. And Jeremiah would preach for 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years. He would give them God's word. He would give them God's warning. He would give them God's instruction. He would give them God's plan. He would give them God's promise. He would give them the repeated message. And as he repeatedly gave them the message that judgment was coming, they became harder and harder in their heart and in in, in an almost a crazy way, in an almost an insane way. The more more that Jeremiah would speak to them about the judgment that was coming, the more and more and more that they wouldn't believe him and that they believed that they were safe and that everything was fine and nothing bad was going to happen. Can you imagine? That's your job. To call a nation to repentance. To know and love and trust the Lord. And they won't do it. And the judgment is coming. And it's inevitable. To a nation that loved rebellion more than obedience to God. For a nation that wanted social change and reformation instead of a personal change of heart and repentance, the Lord would call Jeremiah to a difficult and a demanding task because the times were hard. The people loved rebellion more than obedience. They were willing to settle for reformation instead of repentance. They were more interested in politics than in principle. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Jeremiah's message is given to a people who resist God's rule, reject God's law, and require a constant call. Please stop sinning and start trusting the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? The book of Jeremiah reminds us that God is going to fulfill his word. The book of Jeremiah says that God is still on the throne. And by the way, Jeremiah will pronounce prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. He'll talk about the righteous branch of David, a king who will reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth in chapter 23, verses 5 through 8. There are other several references, by the way, in the book of Jeremiah to the Messiah. Messiah is called the fountain of living waters in chapter 2, verse 13. He's called the balm of Gilead in chapter 8, verse 22. He's called the good shepherd in chapter 23, verse 4. He's called the Lord our righteousness in chapter 23. 
23, verse 6. What else are we going to discover in the book? We're going to discover what it means to have a call on our life from God and how God appoints his servants for specific purposes. God's call to courage and faithfulness in the midst of persecution and opposition, physical and emotional trauma and the threat of life. You know, the book of Jeremiah is a book about repentance. Total, sincere repentance. It's also a book about God's hatred of insincere and hypocritical worship. It's also a book about true and false worship. It's a book about the inner struggle and the personal trial of a great man of faith who is going to have to stick to the message that God has given to him. And it's also a book about one man's total faithfulness to God. In the midst of trial and pain and rejection and opposition and persecution, it's really a book about you and me. And the help that it will provide for you and me if we're willing to listen. Can you see why I only could get through the first three verses? But I'm hoping that this is going to provide you with a way of thinking about what you're reading. And we're going to begin to take a whole lot more scripture. And I hope that this is going to help you. In the weeks to come, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that um, you've called us to be leaders in our home, in our church, in our community. You've called us to lead and guide and plead and pray for sons and daughters, grandchildren, for family and friends. To plead and pray that people will turn from their sin and they'll turn to the Savior. To plead and pray with people that there is love and grace and mercy and hope and friendship and fellowship. And that you are a God who loves us. And that you are a God who can be trusted. And you, can be, you are a God who has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of our lives. But you're also a God that hates sin and despises injustice. And that we can't live in the foolish world that the things that we say and the things that we do have no consequences whatsoever. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we will listen and respond in obedience to your call to love you and to trust you. And that our sin has been dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts for Jeremiah's message. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.